The Old Covenant reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then we'll turn to John's Gospel chapter 1. So first, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 20. Through the word of the living God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But with the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now turning to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 1. It's here the word of God from the New Covenant. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, or the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There's the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John. What would you say is the foundation of Christianity? If you said the word of God, yes. But who wrote the word of God? Men did. Inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. What evidence does the Bible use to get us to trust the New Testament, let's say? God inspired men to use two words in particular. One is testimony, and the other is witness. In the New Testament, um, the word testimony in your English Bible, at least the one I have, is used 49 times, testimony. Witness is used 93 times. So it's clear that the Bible has a concern for what we would call a testimony and a witness. Just a quick question. What, what were the last words of Jesus? Don't include the Apostle Paul because that's... Um, and the last words were not in the Gospels. It was in the Acts of the Apostles. In Acts, Jesus tells the Apostles this. Chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10 of Acts of the Apostles. He's resurrected and he's speaking to them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is to the Apostles. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They weren't men, they were angels. The word witness in the Greek is simply what it would be in our day. A witness is an eyewitness. Somebody who's observed something, especially something that's significant that might be used in evidence in a court of law to judge the rightness or wrongness of some charge against a person. In the Greek Bible and in church history, the word witness in the Greek became something extraordinary. It's translated elsewhere as martyr because the early Christians, and probably all of the apostles except maybe John, 
were witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ up to their death. Their, their death because they refused to deny Christ. Their death because they were proclaiming Jesus as the King, the Messiah, etc., etc. So the Greek word for witness becomes martyr. Bearing witness to the truth can get you killed in Christianity. And even this day, bearing witness to the gospel can get you killed in some countries of this world. You and I can be witnesses to what God has done. We can be small E evangelists or small M missionaries. We can tell people about Jesus Christ. Even if it costs us our lives, we're not supposed to deny Christ. So by giving up our lives when being pressured to curse God, curse Jesus. But let me ask you a different kind of a question. If you wanted to undo Christianity, make it like a myth, what would you do? Well, as someone who was a young agnostic, I didn't think it was I didn't think the Bible was true. I thought it was a bunch of old tales, fiction. I didn't necessarily think God was a liar. I just thought the Bible wasn't trustworthy and that the men who wrote it made it up. On the other hand, people do that today. On the other hand, the truth is the 12 men that were eyewitnesses bore witness to the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And they were reliable witnesses. They did not bear false witness about Jesus, which is the commandment I'm concerned about tonight. That You and I would understand how serious it is to bear good witness to the truth. If the Bible is not true, if they were not accurate witnesses, They bore false witness, and all this is made up by them, or half-baked, let's say. Christianity is worthless. But they did not change their testimony. We know from church history, it's likely that every one of the apostles was martyred, except perhaps John. Who was the first martyr? Stephen. Gave a speech to the Jews that got them so mad, they were outraged, and they stoned him to death. So how important is bearing good witness and how horrible is it to bear false witness, to tell a lie, to tell something that's not true about your neighbor, about some fact that you know is a fact? Well, it's the basis for all our relationships. If you can't believe somebody, you don't have much of a relationship. We can love our enemies and our enemies may lie about us, but it's certainly not fun to have somebody lie about you. It can destroy a person's livelihood, his reputation. It can destroy a marriage. It can do all sorts of evil, wicked things. The reason this is so important is we, all human beings, are made in God's image. And all human beings, in general, understand that lying, especially in a court of law, is a terrible thing to do. You don't have to look into every nation world to find that perjury is most likely a crime in that nation. If you go to the court and you swear to tell the truth and you say something that's a lie, or you've been bribed to do it, you have two buddy criminals, and the buddy criminals are giving you an alibi, they're lying in 
courtroom and you're getting off scot-free, that is an evil, and every nation will know that. That's part of human nature, that we know that is a despicable thing to do. But I'm going to go beyond just that nations think that. We, Christians, should regard truth as more than just a useful thing. The truth is actually sacred. It should be treated as extremely important. Just like marriage is sacred. Adultery is wicked. Truth is sacred. Property ownership is sacred. It's your property. Somebody steals it. That's a wickedness. A life based on a lie is wasted. A life based on truth, truth telling and knowing the truth, is a good life. It's a simply good life. Well, why is truth to be regarded as sacred? Well, it's because God is Holy, holy, holy. And God is true. God is a being whose nature is truth. It's part of God's nature, part of God's character. We think of God as being loving and merciful and gracious. But God is just true. He's true through and through. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. The things he knows, he knows perfectly well. And we are told in the Bible itself that God cannot lie. Titus 1 and verse 2. About us, Christians, we have hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. What if God is a liar and he promises things he's not going to fulfill? No. The Bible presents God as a truth-telling God, and if he makes a promise, he will keep it. And he has kept his promise by sending Jesus to be the one who atones for our sins. That is a promise he's kept, and Jesus is coming back. And Jesus himself has said, I've come back to bring you to be with me. You will be where I am. That's a promise our Lord has made. And God is called the Lord of truth. Lord God of truth, Psalm 31.5. Similarly, in 1 John 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The light is the the idea that something that shines the truth on So if there's no darkness in God, no darkness in Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus' prayer for Christians is this, to his heavenly Father, our our heavenly Father, sanctify him in the truth. Sanctify them. Make us change in the truth. Your word is truth. Now that doesn't just mean the written word. It means everything God has spoken God spoke things into existence. The existence that the world was created by the power of God's word is a truth. God's word is powerful. It is true. It is accurate. So the scripture is truth because of the author. Jesus himself is not merely true. He is the truth. John 14, 6. Jesus said to someone, I am the way and the truth and the life comes to the Father except through me. That is, the Son of God, Jesus, the Word incarnate, is the absolute, ultimate, eternal truth in person. Now, if that's all true, and Jesus is resurrected and ascended in heaven and has all authority over heaven and earth, how do we explain, or even without the resurrection of Christ, how do we explain the prevalence of liars in the world. 
We can't explain the prevalence of untruth or bearing false witness being so common in this world without believing in a personal devil as set forth in the Bible. Just as God is the source of truth, ultimately the devil, the evil one, Satan, is the source of untruth. He's the source of lies. John 8, chapter 8 of Gospel of John, verse 44, Jesus is speaking of the Jews who were rejecting Jesus. He says to them, You are of your father, the devil. and Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I don't know if you've experienced this as a parent, but if you ever have a situation where you could take a silly example, somebody took cookies out of the forbidden cookie jar, or they they did something, and you say, did you do it? And they lie. No, I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. Or I don't know how it happened when they were the guilty party. And they lie to your face. The devil was ultimately the source of that little child's lying. Eve listened to Satan. Eve believed, Adam believed the lie that Satan said. Genesis 3, for God knows, this is the word of the evil one, the liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First book of the Bible, the evil one speaks the lie that destroys the world and Adam and Eve and brings the curse upon us. Last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's also called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. He rules by lying. Getting people to believe a lie. They think it's true, but they're believing a lie. Satan also seeks to extend his kingdom with untruth, with lies, with twisted truths, half-truths. Now a Christian who lies, is doing the devil's work and using the devil's weapons. This is not just don't bear false witness in a court of law. Don't just, it's not just don't bear false witness about your neighbor. This is satanic. This is demonic. And it is the way the world is ruled by the evil one. He's a murderer and a liar. The way he tempts us and tempts other people It's not directly, it's like saying to them, he says to them, well, this is the truth, and we believe it, and it's a bold-faced lie, but it sounds so plausible, but it's a lie. Now, let me give you one example from modern day, probably something that's been going on for at least 100 or 200 years. There's a modern way of thinking that violates the sacredness of truth. It's a way of thinking called pragmatism. Pragmatism which teaches that it's not whether something is true or not. The question is whether it works. Does it work? Well, that's good. 
According to pragmatism, the success of something is the test of truth. If something, something, in other words, is to be accepted as true if it works, and we are not to judge it by any absolute standard, not supposed to question anything. We're not to ask questions like, what is good? What's the definition of good? What's the definition of success? What is the good life? What's a beautiful thing? What promotes a good life? No, pragmatism changes people's belief away from some sort of standard that is absolute and sacred and unchanging to be, well, it's good for you if it works, right? You might be believing a lie that's totally contradictory to what he believes, and yet you say it works for me, and he says it works for him, so yeah, it's both true, even though they're absolutely logically incompatible. And there are people in some churches that would say, oh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is good for those people back in the 1600s and maybe the 1700s, but we don't need that, that doctrine, and we don't really care about that doctrine because it doesn't work for us. We need something different, up-to-date, for us in the 21st century, let's say. And as they say, what good is that truth in the Westminster Confession of Faith or any other ancient church creed? And some think the church should be a place of action. And the action that the church should be doing is to be judged based on the success of that action. You could put any program in there. It could be something that enters into worship or something that enters into the way the church spends its money. We should be a church of action. And there would be no reference to a biblical basis for that action. It just works, so we'll do it. And that indifference to biblical truth For the church of Jesus Christ can do nothing truly good, really useful, except by founding its action on the absolute, unchanging, biblical truth that we have. And by the way, if you're a philosopher or somebody, you're going to say, well, and I would agree with this, there's different kinds of truth. Mathematical truth, one plus one equals two. Okay, that's not in the Bible, but it is true. And there's observable events. If you were to if, if you were to explain to somebody what you did today, this evening, you would say, in truth, Stephen Magotsky was preaching, and I heard him preach. You could testify to that. That's observable events. And there's historic truth. You were born on a certain day. You were there. Do you remember it? Your mother was there. Maybe your father wasn't. So your mother probably was an eyewitness to your birth, along with some other helper, a midwife, or some other physician, perhaps. But you don't remember that, do you? But here you are. And you've seen other babies be born, maybe, if you live long enough and see them. Or where'd that child, where'd their baby come from? Oh, I gave birth to him. You have a document, probably. A birth certificate signed by somebody who was there. And probably at that time, your mother and father named you. But you can't go back and observe that. It's, it's done. You trust those eyewitnesses that you were born on a certain day in a certain place, and if you're born in this country, you're therefore an American citizen and so forth. The biblical record records events, and it also interprets them. 
it interprets the birth of Jesus very spectacularly, doesn't it? There were shepherds, there were angels, there was a heavenly music, a light, etc. Because God is true and we are made in God's image, we should all love the truth. First and foremost, biblical truth, but also any form of truth that is truly based on evidence. Now, let's think about this. The the passage in Deuteronomy is not talking about you being an observer of something supernatural. It's talking about thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This is an important truth. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's a relationship. You know your neighbor. You know if your neighbor did something or didn't do something. You may be ignorant of what he did, but you are possibly someone who's observed your neighbor. And you find your neighbor, maybe, doesn't matter who he is, he's a reliable person. You can count on him for help. He lends you tools. He helps you when your tire's flat and all this kind of... You can actually help your neighbor by saying, he's a reputable, he's got a good character. I've known him for X number of years, and I can testify that I've never found him to be a liar, let's say. It's about the truthfulness with other people that the scripture here... Deuteronomy is primarily about. But think of the profound difference a lie makes. If you lie about your neighbor, if you slander him, you say he's a liar, he's, he's you could say something really scandalous, like he's sexually immoral, or you know, he's, he's, he's drunk all the time. And he's not. You could destroy his reputation, destroy his life, especially if it's in a court of law. Have you ever seen this man alone with a, you know, so-and-so? Now, mistakes are not lies. There's one optical illusion that I, it's a classic one that I remember from early psychology of my training. You have two lines that are horizontal, okay? They're exactly the same. They're both, let's say, five inches. And you put arrows in one direction on the top one and arrows in the opposite direction on the lower one. And immediately you're saying they're not the same length. Your eye is tricking you. And we all know there's various optical illusions that you look at that and you go like, that's, wait a minute, what is that? And that's a mistake. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that you observe and they're not optical illusions. That you can say with full confidence, this person did this did not do this. So here's some application questions. What should you do to tell the truth, protect the truth, and love the truth about people? Just about everyday people. Or important people that you may know. You can love your neighbor by protecting their reputation. And there's a passage in Proverbs that says this, Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute. Mute person can't speak. He can't defend him or herself. So you speak for the mute, the person who can't speak. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Somebody who's powerless, has no, whatever, eloquence. Speak for the person who can't speak for their own rights. Human rights are universal. 
Open your mouth, the proverb continues, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Don't favor the rich, don't favor the poor. There's one situation with uh, David, before, way before he was king, he goes to see Goliath and the war that's going on, he's curious. He had a job as a shepherd, and he's, here's what his brother says. This is 1 Samuel 19, 4 and 5. Oh, this is Jonathan speaking well of David to Saul, his father, when they had a, a problem. It's a different application, example I'm thinking of. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, this is when Saul wants to kill David, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. There's a testimony. And because his deeds have brought good to you. That's a testimony. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, think Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, reminding King Saul. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now that's speaking truth to power. The king, it's the king's son, Jonathan, speaking to King Saul, who wants to get David murdered, and it's true. The reputation of David is perfect. He did not sin against, against the king. He did this wonderful thing. He was used by God to rescue Israel and so forth. And so that's telling the truth of young David's reputation as being wonderful. And you saw it, King Saul, my dad. The other thing we should do is we understand that truth enters into how you love someone. 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears with people. Believes things that are true. And of course, one application is never, ever be a liar in a trial a faithful witness does not lie, Proverbs 14, 5. But a false witness breathes out lies. The other thing we should understand about bearing witness about your neighbor is your neighbor may not be perfect. He may have some weaknesses you know about. He may even have some sins that you know about. But the way you look at the truthfulness about somebody's weaknesses is significant. You should be sorry about another person's weaknesses. Not only be sorry about them, you would seek to cover them up. The weaknesses of others, even the sins of others. You should, you should seek to not magnify them, but to like just not, not harm them, but try to protect them. So there's four verses that I want to show you. Second Corinthians chapter two. This is Paul. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which is not a good church in many ways, to say the least. They got drunk on the Lord's Supper. They were confused about the resurrection. They were divisive. They had sexual immorality. Even the pagans said, now there's a sexually immoral person in that Corinthian church. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians, writes about his first letter. He writes this about his first letter. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. 
not to cause you pain. She probably did cause them pain. But to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. If there ever was an apostle who rebuked a church, it was Paul rebuking the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, again he writes, this is later in the letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He has an emotional reaction to the Corinthian mess, let's say. I fear, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have Here's the apostle saying, I've written you this letter. I know you're messed up. You have sexual problems, all these kinds of problems in that church. And he wrote a letter to them beginning by thanking God for the work of God among them, but they're still sinners and they're scandalous in many ways. And he writes that he fears he'll come to them and God will humble him by seeing them unrepentant. He doesn't want to broadcast their sin to the Roman Empire. He's saying, I'm heartbroken over your sins. And I'm even heartbroken anticipating seeing you when some of you haven't repented yet. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Now think about this. Somebody has really offended you. Maybe it's not a sin, but they, I don't know, whatever. They just, they did something offensive to you. Whoever covers that up seeks love, but he who repeats a matter. Now, this is a matter that's true, probably. Yes, you really did, you know, you never returned my lawnmower or whatever, I mean, or something more serious. He who repeats a matter separates close friends. That's to magnify it, make it worse by harming their reputation. Now, here's one from the New Testament that we should all be aware of. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If you're eager to say, guess what happened to so-and-so in the church? And it's true, he or she did something wrong. They may be in jail for it, it may be public. But why, why not try to just not forget about it, but just it all the time, not say, well, that's Sue who did such and such, and she's in jail, or that's John who's, who did such and such, and he's, he's going to be in court. He's being sued for everything he's worth because he did it. Why would you repeat those kind of things? Love covers a multitude of sins and does not rejoice in somebody's wickedness. The other thing you need to be careful of is not ignoring the good things in somebody. Everybody in this room, according to the Bible, is a sinner. And if I get caught in some sin, hopefully they'll remember I gave one or two good sermons in my lifetime. And they won't ignore that. They'll say, yes, he did X, Y, or Z, but he wasn't, doesn't excuse his sin of X, Y, or Z, but he was a really sensitive pastor in many ways. And he had that one falling. He committed adultery and murder like King David. No, let's not go there. But you get my point. It's not that we rejoice in somebody's fall and repeat it and magnify it and Label that person as he's that kind of person. He really did the dirty deed. 
And we ignore that he repented with tears. We don't tell that part of the story. <laughs> and then, like I mentioned, the Corinthian church, Paul starts out 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That's that church that Paul says, I'm afraid I'll come to you and I'll find some of you are still practicing that sexual immorality that you haven't repented of. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful what we do with our speech. And it's our duty, in a general sense, to be lovers of truth, honest, wanting to hear a good report about somebody. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, and I would add footnote, testify to them, bear witness to them. That was an excellent thing that person did. That was a lovely piano piece. That was a pure thing my daughter just said and did. That is Merrimack Valley Presbyterian Church is a commendable church. You say those things. You don't just think about them. You should bear witness to them. So what are the sins forbidden in this commandment? Well, the sin of telling a lie and ruining the good name of someone. And even this, this is one that actually is in the larger catechism as well, by imputing the motives of someone unjustly. You think you know why so-and-so did X, Y, or Z. Now, this goes back to this example I was thinking of earlier, where David, David is going to see the, what's going on with the Philistine War. He's left the sheep. He's coming to the war. His brothers are there. His eldest brother is there. His name is Eliab. Eliab, David's elder, eldest brother, heard... When David spoke to the men, this is on the front lines with Goliath. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's accusing David of just being eager to see the battle. He's imputing a wicked motive. He left the sheep. What's going on with the sheep? This is a brother imputing the motive of David, who had a pure motive, not a like, oh, I just want to enjoy the blood and guts of this war. I've never seen a war. I want to see it. This is imputing someone's You do not know why somebody did such and such. So don't go there. Don't go there. Don't impute something somebody's, unless they say, well, the reason I did that is I hate you, or whatever. Um, it's also your duty to speak the truth 
and not be silent. Leviticus 5.1, if anyone sins and that he hears a public call to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his evil. The idea of like, you have an opportunity, you know your neighbor's being accused of something, and you know he couldn't have been in that place at that time, or you know someone knew he was you know, not in that place, you know, secondhand, but you know somebody who could be a good witness to defend him. And maybe you yourself are a good witness. He, he was not there. He was out of town that day. I know it. And you remain silent. This is not bearing witness that's a lie. You're just holding back a truth that you know, and that is a wicked thing. There's also speaking the truth, and the Bible would probably say unseasonably, I think is what the larger catechism says, Speaking the truth unseasonably, and Proverbs 29.11 gives a good example of this. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You're in an argument, and you give full vent to your anger. And you might say something that's true, but it was not done in a gentle, godly for the good of the other person kind of way. A man quietly holds back a truth at times to be presented. Think of marriage arguments or arguments with your children or whatever. I mean, the words you always or you never are, should be banned from any family discussion. Um, Jesus did conceal truth from the apostles. Do you know that? He said to them at one point in John's Gospel, 16, chapter 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Later on in the same chapter, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So like, all right, well, he's the Son of God. He knows when to tell the truth to them about the plan. And the prophets spoke in riddles, and sometimes the point of the riddles was the judgment is they're not going to understand the riddle. So what do we learn about the greatest testimony, the greatest bearing of truth? Think Jesus. Think he, towards the end of his life, he's arrested. He goes to Pilate. He's already gone to the chief priests. And here's John 18, 29. So Pilate went outside to the and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered Pilate, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Yeah, he wasn't doing any evil. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, King of the Jews. Jesus answered, You say this, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting for me that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And here's the key phrase. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And we know from other gospels, also a murderer. The son of God took on human nature to bear witness to the truth. He gave his life so that we would know the truth. The truth of God's plan to send his son. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah, other prophets. It's even in Genesis. And he has come. And he bore witness to the truth. This plan is unfolding. And this plan will continue to unfold because God has said it. And God is not a liar. And Jesus bore witness to the truth. And Pilate asked, what is truth? And he knew that Jesus was not guilty. Consider the wonders of the revelation of truth that we have and the bearing witness to that truth by our Lord and Savior and the apostles and all the prophets in the Old Testament and all the letters in the New Testament. And so we should love that truth particularly, but we should also be truth bearers. We should bear witness to the truth everywhere and protect people from damaging language that may be out there against them. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious thing it is that you have revealed supernatural truths to us. We would not know these things if they were not recorded in Scripture. And you've revealed your plan. Not the details, perhaps, that we would want to know, but you've revealed your plan to us, the plan of redemption, and the history of the world from Adam and Eve, and even to the end, where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We know that you have sent your Son to bear witness to the truth, and the apostles did, and that we too, in our own way, should bear witness to the truth of the gospel, but also bear witness to truths about our neighbors, and that we should love the truth, the truth where there is a good character trait in someone who is otherwise maybe a sinner, even a scandalous sinner. So help us to be bearers of the truth in whatever way we can. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.